This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. Today is International Museum Day. Every year since 1977, ICOM or International Council of Museums has organized this International Museum Day. It represents a unique moment for the international museum community. On this day, several participating museums plan creative events and activities which relate to the International Museum Day theme. They have these annual themes. and they engage with their public and highlight through these events the importance of the role of museums as institutions that uh, serve society and its development the objective of international museum day is to raise awareness raise awareness i mean of the fact that and i quote museums are an important means of cultural exchange enrichment of cultures and development of mutual understanding cooperation and peace among peoples unquote so it's typically organized each year on or around today that's 18th of may through events and activities planned to celebrate this day the celebrations can last a day or a weekend or even a whole week so Participation in International Museum Day has been growing among museums all over the world. For instance, in 2021, around 89 million internet users um, participated through social media, news articles, blogs, podcasts, and so on. So um, it's grown very, very big and major. but then how did it really come about and what are the messages that celebration such as this wish to send to the international community as such now museums actually play a major role in preserving beauty culture and history they come in all sizes and are often related to institutions of learning academic institutions and libraries as a matter of fact uh, increasingly churches temples and centers of worship even private institutions have taken on the character of museums as people visit them for their artistic value even if they may not share their commercial or or spiritual interests So museums are important agents of intellectual growth and cultural understanding. They're part of the common heritage of humanity and they require special protection especially in times of armed conflict. Please recall how many were terrified at the looting of the National Museum of Baghdad. some of the oldest objects of civilization were stolen or destroyed more recently we've seen the deliberate destruction of cultural heritage in the museum of mosul by isis factions so today there's a huge a deep concern really 
that terrorist organizations or even government troops or rebel armies uh, could threaten UNESCO heritage sites and many such heritage spaces all over the world and other kinds of artifacts. So conserving a cultural heritage in particular is always difficult. Many reasons, really. For instance, weak institutional capacities, lack of appropriate resources. Um, there's then the isolation of many sites. Such concerns are compounded by a lack of awareness of the value of cultural heritage conservation. On the other hand, the dynamism of local initiatives and community solidarity systems are also impressive assets. These factors should be enlisted, enlarged, and empowered to preserve and protect a heritage. Involving people in cultural heritage conservation both increases the efficiency of cultural heritage conservation and raises awareness of the importance of the past for people who face rapid changes in their environment and in their values. Knowledge and understanding of a people's past can help current residents or those who live in the present to develop and sustain identity and to appreciate the value of their own culture and heritage. This knowledge and understanding enriches their lives and enables them to manage contemporary problems with greater efficiency and uh, wisdom. It is important, really, to retain the best of traditional self-reliance and skills and economies as people adopt to change. So traditional systems of knowledge are rarely written down. They're implicit. They're kept forward, taken forward by practice and example. They're rarely codified or even articulated by the spoken word. They continue to exist as long as they're useful, as long as they're not changed or replaced by new technologies. They're far too easily lost. Thus, it is the objects that come into being through the systems of knowledge that ultimately become really and critically important. So museums must become the key institutions at the local level. They should function as a place of learning. The objects that bear witness to systems of knowledge must be accessible to those who would visit and learn from them. Culture must be seen in its entirety, how women and men live in the world, how they use it, preserve and enjoy it for a better life. Museums, museums here play a great role. They allow objects to speak to bear witness to past experiences and future possibilities. And thus, they reflect on how things are and how things might otherwise be. But how did efforts to preserve the past and to preserve artifacts from past systems of knowledge come into being? Now, here we have to go back to a unique individual called Nicholas Rorick. Now, Rorik was a Russian, but a world citizen at the same time. Rorik had lived through the First World War. 
and the Russian Revolution. He saw how armed conflicts can destroy works of art and cultural and educational institutions. For Rorik, such institutions were irreplaceable. They simply could not be replaced once they are lost forever. Their destructions was a permanent loss for all humanity. Thus, he walked for the protection of art, works of art, and institutions of culture in times of armed conflict. He envisaged a universally accepted symbol, like, uh, for instance, the symbol of, of uh, the International Red Cross. So he was looking for... Um, a universally accepted symbol that could be placed on educational institutions in the way, as I said, a Red Cross had become a widely recognized symbol to protect medical institutions and medical workers. So Rorik launched, he proposed really, something called a banner of peace. Now, what was this banner of peace? It was three red circles representing the past, the present, and the future. So these three red circles, uh, he thought, should be placed on institutions and sites of culture and sites of education to protect them in times of conflict. So Rorik was um, an enterprising man at the same time. He mobilized artists and intellectuals in the 1920s for the establishment of this banner of peace as um, a universal movement. Um, he managed to impress Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace was then the, the US Secretary of Agriculture, and later he became a vice president. So um, Wallace, who was an admirer of Rorick, helped to, to put in place an official treaty uh, which introduced the banner of peace. It's also called uh, the Rorik Peace Pact. The treaty, Rorik Peace Pact, was signed at the White House, the, the home of the U.S. president, on 15th of April 1935. The treaty was signed by 21 states um, in um, a pan-American Union ceremony. Henry Wallace said, and I quote, and this is an important uh, observation, and it's a slightly long quote, so please bear with me. And I quote, at no time has such an ideal been more needed. It is high time for the idealists who make the reality of tomorrow to rally round such a symbol of international cultural unity. It is time that we appeal to the appreciation of beauty, science, education, which runs across all national boundaries to strengthen all that we hold dear in our particular governments and customs. Its acceptance signifies the approach of a time when those who truly love their own nation will appreciate, in addition, the unique contributions of other nations and also do reverence to that common spiritual enterprise which draws together in one fellowship all artists, scientists, educators and truly religious of whatever faith, I unquote. So that really was um, the statement of purpose of, of this treaty of uh, banner of peace that Rorik put in place in the US through Vice President Wallace in 1935. So um, 
Rorik said, and I quote Rorik now, The world is striving towards peace in many ways, and everyone realizes in his heart that this constructive work is a true prophecy of the new era. We deplore the loss of libraries of Love and Oriedo and the irreplaceable beauty of the Cathedral of Reims, which too, of course, was lost. We remember the beautiful treasures of private collections, which were lost during world calamities. But we do not want to inscribe on these deeps any world of hatred. Let us simply say, destroyed by human ignorance, rebuilt by human hope, unquote. Now, Rorik's task was taken over after the Second World War by um, UNESCO. UNESCO, of course, making efforts since then for additional conventions on the protection of uh, cultural and educational heritage. Now, that, of course, is very well known. That's how several bodies in times of armed conflicts came into being. And the most important of uh, that uh, those efforts is really the 1954 Hague Convention for the protection of cultural property in the event of armed conflict. Museums, as we know, help to build new bridges between nations, ethnic groups, communities through values such as beauty and harmony. They may serve a common reference. Museums also build bridges between generations, between the past, the present, and the future. Now, however, even as um, we consider together how we may advance the impact of beauty, harmony, and heritage on this world in this International Museum Day, there is a question, really, that also bothers many of us. The idea of a museum, an international museum day, can museums really be international? History says, for instance, and I, I, I use a research by Professor Kavita Singh of JNU here, that museums in the mid-20th century and before had been used as an emblem of a nation, a herald, really, like a national anthem or uh, a national festival or a national library or a national archive. A nation needs its national museum. So, shortly after independence, the project of a national museum for India was initiated. It was to be to be housed in an imposing building at the heart of New Delhi. The museum was filled with art treasures, which traced the nation's history from earliest times. As the new museum of a new nation, the National Museum was to celebrate the ancient culture of the young state. So, like all nations, India modeled uh, the contours of its nationhood on um, the, the features of the colonial master states. As in most Asian, African, or Latin American nations, the erection of a grand national museum then became an act of great symbolic importance. It was seen as a means 
of retrieving one's own past. The new nation would collect, protect, and assign value to its own heritage, independent of the scrutiny and judgments of its erstwhile masters, and would share its masterpieces with its citizens in an affirmation of their rights. So these gestures were so urgent that there was no crisis or any uh, red signal, even from the finance ministry. Funds were mobilized easily enough. India had to make a national museum, uh, like Spain, like France, or like Britain, like they had in Madrid, Paris, or London. So typically, it often becomes um, one of the most important early projects for a nation to build its own national museum. Similar questions or, or um, efforts have been made in South Asia by countries like uh, Pakistan and Bangladesh. So how does one really resolve this um, conflict between the idea of a museum as part of a national heritage, as part of the celebration of a past, which essentially is controlled by one nation as though it must be controlled within the territorial boundaries of one nation state and the idea of an international heritage or a global heritage, the past as a common heritage of all humanity. I do not really have a very good answer. This conflict will continue to persist for a long while yet. But it is important to remember that past is not the property of any one nation. No matter how hard a nation or a country tries to claim a certain part of the past as its exclusive property, the past always tends to slip out of its grip. For instance, if there were a museum on, um, say, the Indus Valley Civilization, India will get to host only parts of it. Supposing um, they were to open such a museum in Delhi or any other part of India, they try and put together resources and artifacts from the sites which were excavated or which fall within the geographical boundaries of India, which will miss out some of the major sites. Likewise, Pakistan would also pick out artifacts from sites which fall within the geographical boundaries of Pakistan. But those of us who read about the past would always know and continue to know for sure that the past countries like India, the past really defies countries like India or Pakistan, the nations which were born much later. So one way of resolving this conflict between museum as an idea or as a, a repository of a nation's past and uh, museum as part of uh, a movement to protect and preserve international humanitarian heritage is to remember that the past often appears in multiple forms and it always tends to resist control by contemporary nation states. Let us remember that simple reality on the eve or indeed on the moment of International Museums Day 2022. 
on that positive and upbeat note i conclude this episode of history chatter i look forward to seeing you next week this is onirban do keep listening to history chatter and do write back to us history chatter is available in epilog media website and all your favorite streaming uh, platforms bye bye